there is going to come a point in your life when you run into uncertainty about God. Doubts and difficulties all related to who he is and what he's like. And I know that some of these shaky feelings and shaky thoughts come from the Bible's own descriptions of God. So today we're going to look at a barrier to belief, and it is the severe realities of hell and what is called God's wrath. And here is what I'm wondering about as we begin. It's this question. Are you ever embarrassed by God? Sometimes, uh, for myself, I, I feel like I need to be a, a PR guy for God. Uh, like, like if I was running God's Instagram, there would be Bible verses that I would be so hesitant and, and cringe about putting out for God's audience to see. And, and I know like over this, these past years, we've gotten way too familiar with, with hand sanitizer, haven't we? And yet when I look at myself, I feel like there are, there are so many times when I try to sanitize God's hands of wrath and of judgment when I'm interacting with people. Like, do we ever feel the need to kind of put some Purell on the picture that the Bible paints for us? Here's why this, this subject matters to me. I have friends that think that God is nuts. And it's the Bible's picture of God himself that keeps them from him. As I was preparing for this message, I actually came across one guy that did some math with every verse in the Bible where someone dies in a battle set in motion by God or where God is seen or perceived to be directly killing someone or some people group. So they added up all the deaths mentioned in all these verses for a total of, get this, 2 million 821,364 people killed. God's kill count in the Bible, I think. The accusation attached to these findings and to this math is that God is drunk with blood. This total, by the way, appears to be far, far worse than God's enemy, the devil, Satan, with a kill count of just 10 in the book of Job which, by the way, is 2,821,354 less than God. So what do we do? What do we do with this? And it's not just our friends or not just our neighbors, though. Like, I have kids, and I want them to experience what I believe is the immeasurable goodness of Jesus. But when do I introduce them to the Bible? Because some places, like, some places in here, wow, it's like, despite what the nice wallpaper of Noah's Ark wants us to think with all of its rainbows and all of its happy giraffes, there are drowned corpses underneath that boat. If some of these scenes are comparable to a movie, a lot of them should be rated R. So look, if you are stuck today because you yourself have some problems with God, or if you're stuck today because you yourself are a bit lost on how to explain why you believe in the God of the Bible, then what I want you to hear as we begin is three things. Number one, I understand your resistance. There, there are good reasons for it, and I'm going to try my best to, to represent those and to wrestle with them authentically. The second thing I want you to hear is that there, there really is going to be some hard work ahead of us over these next few minutes. Not just for me as a, as a communicator, but also for you as a listener. 
Like, to do this message justice, there, there should almost be a, a trigger warning at the start. Like, caution, there's going to be a lot of verses on the screen. Caution, uh, a lot of them are going to be heavy and disturbing. So, look, I'm going to try to do this as thoughtfully and as thoroughly as I can in, in the time given. But a third thing I really want you to hear right as we start is that I really, really do love the God of the Bible, and I am convinced that you should too. So I've been reflecting on a phrase uh, from a, a chapter in the book of Romans in the New Testament uh, as I began preparing for this talk, and I want you to think about this little phrase with me. Romans 11, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Consider then this, these, these two things. Some of us right now do not know deeply in our hearts the goodness and the kindness of God. Others of us aren't convinced deeply in our hearts in the holiness and severity of God. And I hope that what we see coming out of this is both of those things way more fully today. So let me begin with this, part one of this talk, a claim that the character of God is immeasurably good and perfectly consistent. There is a very important scene in the Old Testament that I want to anchor this whole message in. It's a vivid moment in the history of God's people where God reveals himself to a man named Moses. It's the first time in the Bible where we get such a thorough self-description from God about who he is. And it also becomes a repeated description that God's people use and go back to for hundreds of years throughout the Old Testament. It's the Bible verse that the Bible itself quotes most often. Here it is, Exodus chapter 34, where we're anchoring ourselves today, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, being Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Okay, so maybe at this point you're thinking like, Jesse, this is exactly what I have a problem with. It sounds nice up front, but then it gets scary. I'm like quoting that first bit, but, but I cringe to think about even to quote the second half. And I think there might be two reasons for this. First, there, there's, there's this thing about us as a postmodern Western society that we're a bit soft. We've been so shaped by convenience and by safety to the point where even words themselves are equated to actual violence. And look, there might be good things about this sort of culture, but it does make a message like this about wrath and about judgment a bit harder to accept and to listen to. A second variable here might be that we are wired for justice. We're appropriately hurt by, by the abuse of power wielded by those in positions of authority, aren't we? Some of us have actually had firsthand trauma in situations like this. And others of us have just developed sort of a second-hand second, uh, sensitivity to that kind of trauma. And so to claim that God, as someone with power and with authority, can do whatever he wants, however he wants, might be difficult for some of us to wrap our minds around if the perception is that he's doing so unjustly. But I think if we can hang in there, 
to see from start to finish. This description from Exodus 34 is actually consistent. It is actually good. It is actually right. It is actually true. We might just encounter a God who is more completely compelling than we imagine immeasurably good and perfectly consistent. So let me give you an approach for thinking this through. It's four steps to to work through in a specific order. You could, as I've been thinking about it, consider it like a a four-course meal. Your your questions and your thinking, they go as far as they can. You, You get filled up, they go as far as they can, bringing everything from the previous steps with them. And with this four-step approach, I want to interact with two big questions that I think come up in this whole subject matter. It's going to be hard to squeeze them both in into into one single talk like this, uh, but but I'm going to go for it. And I'm kind of not sorry uh, for how dense it will be at times. So here's two questions we're going to interact with. Question one, why does it seem like the Old Testament God needs to calm down? Another way, another way you maybe put this is, why does the Old Testament God seem so different from the New Testament Jesus? And question two, hell can't be for real, can it? Or you could say, if God is actually good, he, he wouldn't torture people forever, would he? So, part two, the four-course meal. This is an approach for processing difficult questions like this, and I want to start with this. Number one, and first and foremost, start with Jesus. You know what's difficult about these messages? How are you supposed to remember? How am I supposed to remember any of what we're going to talk about in the heat of discussion? Like someone throws a big question at you or a big question at me, and, and, and you're in the hot seat, so you have to kind of quickly try to like assess and, 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 and go through the filing cabinet of your brain to be like, uh, I, think, I think I've got an answer for that question here. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what, what to do. Isn't that just so hard in the moment? You know you've got stuff. You know you heard things before that, that convinced you that were, were helpful for you. But in a conversation, it's just it's like, I, I don't know where to start. I don't know where to look. I, I'm fumbling to try and pull out the right thing to say. So let me just, at the start of our whole process here, slap this sticky note right on the front to say, start with Jesus. So when you go to the filing cabinet in your mind, that's the first thing you see. That's the first thing you think about. Why? Well, track with me here for a moment. Why is this helpful? Um, I think in a conversation, I I would begin and I would start with something like, hey, look, that's a big and important question. My starting point for thinking about this is the person of Jesus. Because when we start with Jesus, we're looking at a visible picture of the invisible God. Colossians puts it this way, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And later in that same chapter, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is why we see Jesus tell his first followers, if you've seen, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So when we see Jesus, we see what God is like. And what is God like? Well, Exodus 34 has told us, merciful and gracious, abounding in love, not clearing the guilty. And it makes sense then that we see this from start to finish in the whole story of the Bible. Look, Exodus 34 is on page 57 in my Bible. And if I jump over 681 pages to Romans 5, this is what I see again. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Kindness and severity, goodness and holiness, love and wrath. 
Whatever else God is like, we see him clearly as the one who is a bloody mess on a cross, speaking forgiveness over the ones who hammered the nails into him. In Luke 23, we we see it, his own creation that he's praying for. When they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Start with Jesus. Have that as your picture when you're coming into this. And look with this first course. Maybe, maybe this is enough. But if you have the space for more, here's where you can go next. Second, hold trust and tension at the same time. Because look, no matter how long this talk could be, or how many follow-up conversations you have, books you read, podcasts you listen to, at some level there's always going to be a degree of tension and unanswered questions around this. And maybe this is where we need to accept that trust can exist with tension. That no matter what, God is still above us. And for now, we can't see all things clearly. In a conversation, I would say something like this, and maybe you could too. Look, I don't know everything, but I know enough to trust Jesus. You, do you want to hear one of my biggest tensions with all of this? It's, it's not an intellectual one. It's an emotional one. And this is, where, this is where I want to be so sensitive because I believe something here, it hits home for me, and I, and I think it must hit home for some of us for all of us to some degree. When we ask the second question I posed to us earlier, hell can't be for real, can it? This isn't merely a philosophical question. It's also a personal one. For some of us more than others, the idea of hell is a barrier to belief because to believe in the, in the good news of Christianity is also to accept the bad news. For some, to, to, to receive rescue from God's wrath towards sin is to believe that God's wrath towards sin is real. And, and for some of us, this might mean to embrace the possibility that we may never see our loved ones again who never did come to Jesus. So can I... Can I offer you something here? I believe that, again, with the Philae cabinet, if we start with Jesus, we orient ourselves towards hope. In the final book of the Bible, Revelation, we're given a vision of what's really true amidst all the other things we face in life. One of the things that Jesus tells us there, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And hear this, I hold the keys of death and Hades. Look, if the one who made us, the one who's not willing that any should perish, the one who values each person more than any of us ever could, if the one who was crushed for our sin, if the one who so loves the world, if that one is holding the keys of death, then I can trust that in the end, all things will be right and that he himself will do what he says later in the last book of the Bible. Wipe every tear from our eyes because there's going to be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things will have passed away. And I don't know how that's all going to work. I don't know how he's going to do that. But it's what he says. 
And for now, I'm choosing to trust that trust can exist with tension, that I don't have all the answers, but I do have enough to trust Jesus. So like maybe these first two courses are enough, uh, but if you have space for more, here's where you could go next. Third, embrace the need for judgment. In a conversation, this is where we could say something like, it's sometimes a hard thing to accept, but I'm convinced it makes sense. So let's go back to our anchor text from Exodus 34 for, for a moment. When we look at the words about God, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. There's lots that people have debated about what this means, but what I take this to mean is, is not that God punishes people for things that they themselves have not done. It's that from generation to generation, God will, without favoritism, respond consistently in both love and in wrath towards those who are guilty. This actually confronts a wrong belief. We have this wrong idea that the Old Testament God is the angry one and that when we get to Jesus, he comes to kind of calm God down a bit. But that's actually not true. Have you ever thought about the fact that most of our thinking about hell actually comes from Jesus? For example, look at this teaching from Jesus in Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This teaching and others like it from Jesus himself, like in John 3, after the most famous verse of the Bible, where he says, anyone who believes in me, you know, he's telling them what's going to happen, but also anyone who doesn't believe, the wrath of God remains on them. All these teachings contribute to the reality of judgment that results in a future separation, a darkness, an experience called hell. Why? Why? Why, Jesus? Well, well, Paul explains this to people who became Christians later in a letter to the Ephesians. I just want to read this for us. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Sin is serious, and the justice of God is appropriately severe. He must deal with it. He must, in his holiness, deal with the guilty. We're, we are just not as sold that sin is as bad as it actually is. One scholar comments on Jesus' teaching here from, from Matthew 13 with something I find really important. He says, judgment in our time may well be the despised doctrine. We cringe at the exaggerated language about judgment and we lament that the church has often misused judgment language to bash and scare sinners. We do not need that, but we do need to recover a healthy understanding of judgment, which undeniably was a central feature of Jesus' message both with regard to Israel and as part of his kingdom preaching. 
Judgment is an essential part of the Christian message. We should never forget that without judgment, there's no need for salvation. Without judgment, life is cheapened, for what we do does not matter. With Jesus and his kingdom, what we do matters. How can the modern church find the balance to do justice to the grace and magnanimous love of God and at the same time treat fairly the warnings of judgment, metaphorical as indeed they are? Whatever else we do, we fail if we do not provide the warning that how we live really matters to God and that we will be held accountable. Look, I, I want to point out something about you and about me, about all of us. We, we actually, deep down, we really do want God's wrath to be real. We do. We're wired for justice. We, we want wrongs to be made right. We want violence and abuse to meet justice. We want the evil of racism to be eradicated. We want all the hidden evils that people don't or can't or won't know about to be avenged. We want the brokenness of our world to be destroyed. Things like natural disasters and disease. Like we want cancer to be killed. We want the spiritual forces of evil with all of their presence and power to be gone. We want a cure to this world. And the Bible teaches that that cure will only come in the form of God's wrath towards the root cause of it all. Rebellion against our good and holy creator. All sin must be judged and removed. We want this. Miroslav Volf has one of the most profound statements about this shared desire we have, having lived through some of the just horrific brokenness in our world. He says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love. And God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed. And over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in, day out. Some of them brutalized, beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Here's the amazing thing, going back to our anchor text. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. You see this language about forgiveness for sin. Because look, although, going back to the Ephesians text, although we are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, the story doesn't end there. But God, being rich in mercy, just like we were told in Exodus, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Grace. Hell and wrath 
That's actually fair. Grace is not. And grace is only grace if the outcome should have been otherwise. Either judgment is part of Christian preaching or no one even needs good news. Hell is for real because the wrath of God towards sin is necessary and something we deep down want. But forgiveness and grace are also real and are on the table for us all today. To quote C.S. Lewis, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out past sins and at all costs give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary, a place where Jesus died. So look, our, our plate is getting pretty full here, and maybe all of this is, is enough. But look, if you have space for more, here's where you could go next. There's still some stuff we haven't touched on. Fourth, value thorough study. And a conversation, especially with these sort of more terrible and, and complex Bible passages, I'd say something like, these scenes from the Bible are worth studying more thoroughly because there's more going on than it appears. If you study the Bible, you're going to come across some of these places. For example, 1 Samuel 15, thus says the Lord of hosts, I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way they came up out of Egypt. Now go, strike Amalek, devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Or how about this one, Deuteronomy 20? When the Lord your God gives it, the cities they're attacking, into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword, both the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Or maybe one more, Isaiah 13, their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes, and their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Okay, that's kind of messed up, right? And there's, there's others like these too. So what's going on here? How is this consistent with this text we've been anchoring ourselves in? Well, let me give us a few things to consider. Number one, judgment is God's last resort. Often in these passages, there are terms of peace offered when we read the whole thing. There's warning after warning, sometimes hundreds of years of God's patience. He's not spazzing out, lashing out, flying off the handle. This is consistent with what we know and what we've been saying about God from the start here. Remember Exodus 34. God is slow to anger, but he's not slow to love. A second thing I would consider is that judgment language is often hyperbolic. Like if you read these conquest stories in context, you actually see evidence that there were survivors. There were people who were not destroyed, even though it sounds like everything that breathed was put to death. I love what Dan Kimball says about this, a lot of these scenes. This wasn't a mass killing. It was a limited strategic strike with a lot of war rhetoric. Most of the visuals and the memes, maybe you've seen them, that draw attention to these Bible verses emphasize them in a way that suggests God committed mass bloodthirsty slaughter and genocide. Every single life is of value, so by no means am I suggesting that killing just a few people is an easy thing to dismiss at all. But I want to argue against the idea that this was a mass murder, a ruthless and mindless slaughter. Remember that these times were very violent. There was a very bloody, violent world, something that is difficult for many of us to imagine today. Battle scenes like those we see in movies like Braveheart or the heavy fighting scenes in Lord of the Rings would have been more common in that time and culture. Warfare was normal in ways we can't imagine. And hear this, phrases 
like utterly destroy, drive them out. Another language we find in the Bible were common war rhetoric at that time. It was hyperbole, not a literal wiping out of every, every individual of any age. It spoke of the larger goal of moving people out and emptying the cities, destroying the Canaanite identity rooted in the worship of false gods, as well as their religious temples and cities. A third thing I would get us to think about is that judgment is measured, good, and right. Remember, the consistency here of God not clearing the guilty is what this is about. Like you read in the same book of the Bible where a lot of these passages happen, Deuteronomy 9, look, I'm, it's not because of your righteousness or uprightness of heart you're going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Like we, like we cringe at this. We apologize for some of this. But God's people in the Bible, they often celebrate his wrath and his judgment. And if we knew what God knows, we would too. Like just think, if we actually knew what, what some of these religious practices were, burning babies alive, for example, in some of these cultures, maybe this would make a bit more sense to us. The problem is, is that critics of the Bible uh, often just pull out the harsh scenes without a lot of this context. And we shouldn't do that with any person, let alone with God. For example, uh, my, my kids, they know how to, they figured out on my phone how to, how to access the camera. And so sometimes they just go around the house and they start shooting, shooting pictures. And, and you know, as, as this happens, eventually I go and look at our camera roll and I see that, that the perspective they have and the collection that they create with these pictures, it gives a very odd impression of what our home life and what I, what I am like. Now, these things are maybe true, but that's not the whole picture, right? Like if I, if I were to post on, on my social media only the photos that my kids take and something like that. Like the other day, my four-year-old was running around for like 10 minutes, took like hundreds of photos. If I only ever were to select ones out of that, and if that's all you ever found out about me by searching me up online, you'd have a, a very maybe different picture instead of a complete and accurate picture. You'd think, wow, this guy's, this guy's super lazy. I look at this photo, like what am I doing here? Like, what's going on? He, he's, he's not put together. He never leaves his house, it seems like. He's always on his couch. Uh, he's got, always got this kind of weird double chin thing going on because of the angle that these, these photos are all shot. Like, what, the house is a disaster. There's always a mess. Wh why would this be true? Because you're getting everything from one angle, from a limited time frame, without a wider context. And this is similar to what happens when we're upset about the God of the Bible. If we read only the bad stuff, pulling it out from only one angle, from a limited time, without the wider context, we should conclude, like renowned author and atheist Richard Dawkins once did, that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I would probably think something similar if I only had those scenes. So let me ask, what's actually shaping your view of God? Is it actually his word from start to finish? Or just stereotypes attached to your favorite influencer? Because look, avoid Avoid forming your picture of God from the bits or stories of the Bible taken out of context without seeing the whole story. And ask your questions. Maybe you're still questioning God in it all. We're kind of nearing the end here. That's happened before. But I find the whole chapter of Ezekiel 18, read it sometime, really helpful. Let me just read you one part where God is talking. He says, Yet the house of Israel says, 
The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions you've committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. And this is how I want to finish today with an invitation. We started with Jesus and this is where I want to end too. There's this little story in the Old Testament of a man named Jonah who God sends to announce judgment on a city called Nineveh. Eventually the city repents, cries out for mercy. God doesn't destroy it. And Jonah's upset about this because he knows how evil they are. And he actually takes the same text, this anchor text about God's character, and he throws it back in God's face. Look at this. It depleased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, this is not what I said when I was in my country. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew... You are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. And look at God's response. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God sees sin more than we do. And as our anchor text today shows, he's consistent in who he is. Severe towards sin, but kind. And again, we arrive at Jesus and we see the same thing. In Jonah's story, Nineveh receives mercy because they do not know. And in our story, we receive mercy because as Jesus hangs on that cross, he prays, Father, forgive them for they what? Do not know what they do. Look at the lengths that God went to bring you and me home. As 1 Thessalonians says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe today, more than intellectual food for thought, you need to enter in relationally. Maybe you need to right now come to Jesus in relationship and experience like the Psalms say, to taste and see that the Lord is good and there, there is joy for those who take refuge in him. If you're in that spot today, pray this with me and after you pray it, reach out and connect with some of us to do new life together. Pray this along with me. Lord Jesus, I want to know you personally. I admit that I've sinned against God and I am separated from him. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins in order to bring me back to God. I put my trust in you and I ask you to be my Savior and Lord. Thank you for giving me eternal life and making me a part of the family of God. Take control of my life. Fill me with your spirit and make me the person you created me to be. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Amen.